If you would, uh, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. I'm going to be reading three texts. We have three texts as our text today, if you will. Uh, Isaiah 52, if you'd like to turn there. They'll all be on the screen. Uh, Acts 10.36 and then Matthew uh, chapter 5 will be where we'll be reading from. And uh, so, uh, we're, we're, the title of the message today is Peace and the Peacemaking Mission of Jesus. Peace and the Peacemaking Mission of Jesus. Of Jesus, and um, uh, I, I, I believe that this topic, this particular discussion that we're having today, uh, is honestly about as central to the heart of the gospel as you can get. And uh, so, there aren't many things I'd rather talk about than this one right here. Um, and I hope that you're able to capture that a glimpse of that at least today as we go. But if you would read with me, we'll read the three different texts. But Isaiah 52. Uh, verse 7. We'll begin there. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And then uh, in Acts chapter 10, verse 36, you know, this is Peter who's beginning to explain and share the gospel with the people at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, if you're familiar with that story. And he describes it this way. He says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And then finally in, Acts, or in Matthew rather, chapter 5, uh, verse 4 and verse 9. I'm going to read those two verses Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the peacemakers, and this is verse 9, for they will be called children of God. If you would, join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word today, Help us to understand the centrality of peace, of shalom, to the very gospel itself, to your mission. And help us in understanding your mission to obey our calling to be peacemakers, shalom makers, in a world where so much is lost and broken. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The spring of 1864 was a time of physical and spiritual depletion, darkness, and death here in the United States. According to one scholar, by summer's end, the number of dead, wounded, captured, and missing in action had reached more than 580,000 in the north and nearly 470,000 in the south. Desperation gave rise to a mad cry for peace at any cost, according to historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. A mad cry for peace at any cost. It was also re-election time for Lincoln. The Republican National Committee chair, Henry Raymond, warned Lincoln in late August that people were tired of the war. For the Republicans, he said, for the Republicans to have any chance of victory... You must commence peace talks 
on the sole condition of reunion, leaving the issue of slavery for later consideration. Lincoln answered, I confess that I desire to be reelected. I have the common pride of humanity to wish my past four years administration endorsed. And at the same time, I want to finish the job. They rejected Raymond's plea to sound out conditions for peace without demanding the end of slavery. Lincoln would rather face electoral defeat than renounce emancipation. Amen. I should be damned, I'm quoting Lincoln, sorry, in time and in eternity. It's what he believed if he were to abandon the commitment, his commitment to the twin goals of union and freedom. What is peace? Could Lincoln end the war at any cost and have peace? Many consider peace the absence of hostility, the absence of war. Lincoln understood the practical problem with that. If you end the war but leave an entire group of humans enslaved, you don't have peace. For whom would it be peace? If we think of peace as the absence of certain things, the absence of war, conflict, hostility, bitterness, you could name a whole lot of other things to go on that list, then peace is not really a thing at all. It's just the absence of things. It would just merely be the vacuum created by the absence of those other things. Yet peace is what existed before war, conflict, hostility, bitterness. Peace existed because God created it. What exactly is peace? And why is it important to the gospel itself? Well, first, peace must be defined as a positive, an actual thing, not just the absence of other things. It must be the fullness of something rather than the absence of something. Darkness is the absence of light, not the other way around. Light is not the absence of darkness. You can't take darkness and eliminate it and somehow get light. Light is. Darkness is the absence of it. Peace is. And so what is peace? Many have defined peace as the well-being of all people. It's simple. I think it's accurate. Gets kind of to the point pretty quickly, doesn't it? Peace is the well-being of all people. War and hostility are the absence of that well-being. Injustice and inequity are the absence of that well-being. Now, this fits entirely with a biblical understanding of shalom. The Hebrew consonants for that word shalom, it's the Hebrew word for peace, that we translate peace, perfectly fine translation. But those consonants, and the way Hebrew works, almost every word, there's exceptions, of course, but most words have three consonants in them, and words that have those same three consonants are related in their meaning. And the, the same three consonants are for the word that you would translate complete or whole. So shalom is this sense of wholeness, this fullness, this full well-being to bring in that other definition. It's a state, shalom, of being whole, complete as God designed things to be. 
Now, peace translates in the New Testament, the, the, the Greek word irene, which in turn translated the Hebrew word shalom in the, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Neil Planiga, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he wrote this. And it's a lengthy quote, but it's worth taking the time to read. The, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation... Injustice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder at its, as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. How many times in our lives do we just look at things or think about what's happening if that's not how it was meant to be? A father or a mother husband or wife, comes down with cancer and dies early, you just want to scream, No! It's not the way it was meant to be. So many things are not the way they were meant to be. Wherever there is not well-being, peace has been attacked. Wherever there is not well-being, peace is therefore the need. Christ came to bring peace, to announce peace. Lincoln understood that peace required human flourishing and would rather have lost an election than aim for false peace. Jesus Christ is the ultimate peacemaker and calls us to join in his peacemaking mission. That's really what I want you to take home today. I want to say a lot of stuff, but at the end of the day, it's all saying this. Jesus Christ is the ultimate peacemaker and calls us to join in his peacemaking mission. So we're going to look at that under three headings. One, why do we need a gospel of peace? Secondly, in what ways can we see that Jesus was a shalom maker? And finally, how are we to join Jesus in his shalom making mission? So why do we need a gospel of peace? First, because of sin. In its simplest definition, sin is anything that offends God. It is personal, and we are culpable, or at fault, worthy of blame. For both sins of commission, things we do, and sins of omission, things we fail to do. In other words, we do things that offend God, and we fail to do things, and that offends God that we failed to do them. While this definition of sin is true, it is not ultimately sufficient. Because by that definition alone, one might conclude that God's just a big killjoy. Sets too many arbitrary rules. Says no to a bunch of stuff we think is good. So we must seek to understand why sin offends God. What is it about sin that is offensive to God? Cornelius Plantinga suggests this, quote, God is, after all, not arbitrarily offended. God hates sin, not just because it violates His law, but, more substantively, 
because it violates shalom. Because it breaks the peace. Because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. God is for shalom and therefore against sin. In short, sin is culpable shalom breaking. Now think of it that way. Sin is doing things that break shalom. They put an end to peace. I mean, think about it. The last time you sinned against your spouse. Did, did, did that promote peace? Uh, I'm not thinking so. That's what sin does at the end of the day. You see, God's, sin isn't, God's law doesn't say don't do something because He just wants you. It's because that will break shalom. It's not how I created things to function and be. Sin has created a world in which shalom or peace, the well-being of all people, has been broken. Broken with greed, with hostility, with hate, with disease, with oppression, with injustice, with bitterness, with shame, with debauchery, with jealousy. And the list goes on. Since things that break shalom abound, shalom making is desperately needed. There will always be a help wanted sign for shalom makers in the window. Always. There will never be an excess of shalom makers. And Christ has called us to be shalom makers. We'll get to that. That's point three. But this does lead to the problem. How can those who are shalom breakers become shalom makers? I mean, we're called to be, we read it in Matthew 5, peacemakers, shalom makers. But we, if we're honest, are all shalom breakers. We break the peace. So, what do we do about that? You see, Adam and Eve, male and female, were originally made as image bearers. In its most basic meaning, they were to be God's agents in a world that needed garden making. You know, you you, you read right before it says that they were uh, made male and female in His image. what, What was God doing up to that point? He was taking a world that was chaos, that was There was no life. And he was creating it as a place where there was life and flourishing and fruit and food. And then he makes them human. Male and female and puts the human in a garden that Eden. The the rest of the world, as far as we're told, was arid. A barren wilderness, if you will. But God creates a space for shalom. A space for shalom. And he puts them there. And what does he tell them? Well, you're going to subdue the earth. Make it fruitful and multiply. In other words, with that hoe that he gives Adam, as we call it, you're going to go turn the rest of the world into a garden, a place of flourishing, a place of shalom. You see, Adam and Eve were the original peacemakers. But as we know the story, they did what? They rejected God's way and became the ultimate peace breakers, right? And of course, because they had rebelled against God and Shalom was broken, they had to leave the garden, the place of Shalom, and enter the hostile world around. Now, instead of working from a place of Shalom, or fullness, bringing that to the world, they were working from a place of hostility. They were working out of a deficit. It's hard to do that. 
constantly trying to catch up to something. You're never quite there. And the hostility was now in their hearts. We read about their shame. We read about jealousy. We read about distrust as we go through Genesis. They became peace breakers. They became shalom breakers. And this created a need for a unique shalom maker. One who could not only bring peace or wholeness, but could reset other humans in their relationship to God so that they too could become shalom makers. Enter Jesus Christ, the incarnation. We call it Christmas. Jesus, the shalom maker. That's our second heading. I want to reread Acts 10.36. It says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Announcing the good news, the euangelion, the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Or if you want to, probably how it would have been said in Jesus' day, announcing the gospel of shalom. Through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. God sent the message of peace through Jesus Christ. In what ways did Jesus bring peace? In what ways did he bring shalom? Well, firstly, he came announcing peace. A a real announcement about a real peace. Restoring people to shalom. Uh, Imagine, you get out of here today and you turn on the radio. Apparently... The, the Apple iPad Pro 6th generation is in high demand this year as Christmas gift. If anyone's thinking about what they want to get me, <laughs> just saying, you know, <laughs> could be on the list, but, but that is apparently one of the highest demand gifts. Well, imagine you get out of here, you turn on the radio, and you hear an announcement. Sam's Club is going to be offering these. They have plenty in stock. And if you go to Sam's, you can get one today only for $250 instead of the normal over $1,000 price. Okay, that's an announcement, right? You hear it on the radio. But imagine you go to Sam's and they just look at you kind of funny and say, I don't know what you're talking about. We don't have any of those. And if we did, they wouldn't be that price. That's an announcement that means nothing. Right? It's an announcement that's worthless. It's wasting everybody's time. When God sent Jesus announcing peace, it wasn't just an announcement that meant nothing. It was an announcement that had actual peace behind it. He was announcing peace because he brought peace. It was more than just a verbal thing. It was a verbal thing that reflected a true state of what he was bringing. This peace is so pervasive in the Gospels that you might miss it when you read through. Take Matthew's gospel, for example. Jesus begins his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount, teaching us what it looks like to be shalom makers. I mean, honestly, if you, you want to know, what does it look like to be a shalom maker? Sermon on the Mount. It's all over that message. And as soon as he's finished with the Sermon on the Mount, this is just chapter 8. We could go on, but just chapter 8. He cleanses a leper, he heals a paralyzed man, he drives fever from Peter's mother-in-law, allowing her to get up and serve, to be an image bearer. He set demon-possessed people free, he healed many sicknesses, he rescues his disciples on the sea by calming a storm, he restores the demoniac 
the demoniacs, which no one could control. And by the end of chapter 8, he heals a second paralyzed man. That's just chapter 8. He's making people whole. Find a chapter in the Gospels. What is he doing? He's making people whole. The miracles of Jesus were all about restoring shalom. He came to set things right because they were not the way they were supposed to be. Remember what Plantagus said in that quote earlier. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Thanks be to God. Jesus sets things right. Restoring people to the state that they ought to be in. Luke, at the birth of John the Baptist, describes Jesus as, quote, The rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. Shalom. He's wanting us to find that path, get on it, and get there. Into the path of peace. So firstly, Jesus came announcing peace, a real peace, an actual shalom that he was bringing. And secondly, he brought peace by reconciling us to, uh, to God, or you might say uh, putting us at peace with God. That's what it would mean to reconcile us to God, would be to put us at peace with God. God in Jesus announces that he is not holding our sins against us. We read about this in a variety of places, but Romans 5, verse 1, we read this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 6, we pick up. You see, this tells us how we got this peace with God. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And maybe some of you came today and you spent so much of your life thinking, God doesn't love me. My life's such a mess. But see, that's the point here. God didn't wait for you to get cleaned up. God didn't wait for you to get it put back together. He knows that you have a broken life that is not in the state of shalom. And while we were still sinners, while we were still shalom breakers, while we were still those who constantly broke His commands... Christ died for us. How much more? See? How much more than when we come to Him and humble ourselves? How much more? If he, if he was willing to die when you were a sinner, how much more when you humble yourself and lay yourself before Him will He embrace you in His love? Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the means of peace with God. He suffered the consequences of our sin. 
2 Corinthians 5.19, we read this, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Not counting people's sins against them. It's like, really? That sounds too good to be true. But it, it is. That's the gospel. God's not counting our sins against us. To reconcile, God's reconciling the world to himself. To reconcile is to restore peace, to create peace, shalom, where there was hostility and war. We were at war against God, but he set us back into a state of being at peace as it was in the beginning and even better, ultimately. This reconciliation with God is essential if we are to be made peacemakers, shalom makers ourselves. Now we are being reshaped into Christ's image, who is the image of God. Now we can be made into image bearers or shalom makers. That leads to our third heading, which is about our calling to join Jesus' shalom making mission. Our calling to join Jesus' shalom making mission. And I'll reread Matthew 5, verse 4 and 9. And I'll explain momentarily why I've picked those two verses in particular. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, the shalom makers. By the way, when we mourn, what do we mourn? Do we not mourn things that are lost, loved ones that are lost, a life that was lost, hopes that were lost, a home that's been destroyed, a marriage that's been destroyed? These are the things we mourn, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the shalom makers. What's shalom? Wholeness, completeness. So you have people that have loss, and you have people that make people whole that have loss. For they will be called children of God. See, disciples are called to see those who mourn, those who have suffered loss, and to seek to make them whole. To seek... To make them whole. Since Jesus was the original shalom maker, restoring people to wholeness, it should be no surprise that the shalom making ministry of his disciples is put right up front in the gospel. It's right in the Beatitudes. It's like, okay, I'm going to start my ministry. I've got some guys, people that are wanting to find out what I'm going to say, and I want them to follow me. So they follow him up the mountain. He says, I want to make you peacemakers, shalom makers. Why? Because it's important to him. It's what the gospel is all about. It's the gospel of peace. It's been pointed out that our first four Beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for justice, are conditions of a person. While the last four, the merciful, the peacemakers, pure in heart, that one needs a little explanation, but it certainly... Uh, in the context of Matthew's gospel, is, has to do with how we live our lives. The, and, uh, the persecuted describe the kinds of actions or experience which disciples are called to have. In, in my article, uh, The Beatitudes in the Life of the Church, I make the case, and I'll, uh, I, I'm going to quote myself, if that's okay with you. I don't usually quote myself, but I couldn't quote anyone else since... I wrote it, so I had to quote myself. <laughs> but it's an article, you can get it off our website, but the Beatitudes in the Life of the Church. Um, 
I make the case there that disciples are called to carry out the actions of the last four Beatitudes in order to meet the needs of the people and the conditions of the first four. And that there's a correspondence in those numbers in a, in, in, in a it's, it's called chiasm, but it's in the article. But the first and the last, the second and the, the seventh, the third and the sixth, and the fourth and the fifth. So they, they correspond. And so that's why four and nine are the verses that I've chosen, because it is the peacemakers who are called to meet those who mourn lost and to make them whole again. And here's what I write. When shalom makers act as the father, whose children they are, they'll be called the children of God, note that line. When shalom makers act as the father, whose children they are, and bring restoration to those who mourn what is missing in their lives, those who mourn will be comforted. And there is the kingdom of heaven. They, these disciples, become agents of a kingdom in which they bring comfort by doing the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. That's the calling of disciples. That's what disciples are to do. In fact, when we're going to go out and make disciples, we need to go out and start making shalom makers. Because that's what we're called to do. Now, of course, similarly with each of the other four pairs of Beatitudes, to be sure. But I think this one certainly has a central place. To be a peacemaker, a shalom maker, is the call of disciples. This is part of what Jesus commanded us to do, and therefore it's a part of the Great Commission. Because we're to go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, and two steps to making disciples, one, you baptize them, right? Right? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, you, 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 you bring them into the church. That's how they become a part of this body. The entrance rite, baptism. And two, what? Teach them, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Well, in Matthew's Gospel, the whole four, first sermon, <laughs> Sermon on the Mount, makes up a good chunk of what he's commanded us. And right at the beginning of that is our call to being peacemakers, shalom makers. Anyway, in the article, I go on to make the case that to be merciful, to have true purity of heart rather than externally clean hands, uh, to be shalom makers and to be the persecuted on account of justice are vital to true disciples and an essential part of being formed into the image of God in Christ. Today, we're just focusing on that shalom making element. But we are called to engage those who suffer the effects of broken shalom and as Christ did, make it our ambition to restore them to wholeness our peacemaking always includes the message of reconciliation be reconciled to god his offer of forgiveness is for you the gospel it's as if jesus were standing up here today and you came in a sinner and he looks you in the eye as you see him doing the gospels And says, your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Because when the gospel comes and says, your sins are forgiven, then they're just as forgiven as if he had said, standing here today, your sins are forgiven.
And the credibility of our message about forgiveness of sins involves helping people to get up and walk. Restoring them to wholeness. This is how the world will know Christ has authority to forgive sins with a word of the gospel. See, the the world, they aren't going to believe that sins can be forgiven unless we can also help people get up and walk. I'm not arguing that we're going to do that the same way Jesus did it. Surely that has happened from time to time. But with everything we can do, just like he did with everything he could do, we want to help people to be whole again. And we do it by the power of the Spirit and with the gifts that he gives, to be sure. You may recall one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house and lay him before Jesus. But of course, they couldn't find a way because there's too many people there. And they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now, to be sure, I don't think they were vandalizing the roof, just in case you're worried about that. Seems like they took a, you know, the, the, the parts of the roof off and set them aside. So it was all good. It could be put back later. When Jesus saw their faith, he says to the man, friend, your, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, let's be honest. Nobody's asking that question today. Like, when's the last time you were talking to somebody about the gospel or about Jesus and said, but who can forgive sins but God alone? That is not a cultural thought. It's like, no, not thinking that. Either people think there is no such thing as sin, but in reality, I think it's far more likely that they think anyone can forgive sin. We're happy to let them off the hook, unless, of course, they sinned against us specifically. You know, if you're just out living a life of debauchery, I don't care. Now, the minute you take something from me or do some harm to me, then we're going to have a little bit of an issue. And so one might think this story is irrelevant. But despite the fact that either we think there's no such thing as sin or we think anyone can forgive sin, certainly society can forgive sin because we've just declared it's okay, so therefore we've forgiven your sin. I mean, that's just the mentality. But regardless of that and despite those attitudes, people are plagued by guilt and shame. (laughs) It belies their thinking. If there's... No real sin. If everybody's just let it go, then why do I feel so much guilt and shame? It's because we're in hostility with God in our hearts. And yet God says, I'm not going to hold your sins against you. Come. Come. Your sins are forgiven. The authority to truly forgive sins does not reside with society, but with God. The Pharisees had it right about who had the authority to forgive sins, but they didn't have it right about Jesus Christ. So Jesus knows what they're thinking when they ask this question inside their heads. Who can forgive sins but God alone? He says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, he ponders with them. Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Now, the answer to that's obvious, I think. But just to be plain, 
If I say your sins are forgiven, who can prove me wrong? Now, granted, who can prove me right, but who can prove me wrong? Can't prove me wrong. Now, if I say get up and walk, well, that's a pretty straight-up deal, right? You're going to see them either walk or not walk. They get up and fall down, can't walk. Well, I've been shown a liar. So it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say get up and walk. But then Jesus says, but I want you to know, that's the NIV, it's literally, but that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Note the wholeness there. He picks up his mat, and he goes home. Just shalom in that whole thought right there. Here was a paralyzed man, and he's going to stroll out of there today, and he's going home of his own power. And he's worshiping God. That was the evidence offered to validate Christ's authority to forgive sins by His Word, by the Gospel. The validity of the Gospel's power to forgive will be demonstrated by the shalom-making community, the church. Let's say that again. The validity of the Gospel's power to forgive will be demonstrated by the peacemaking, shalom-making community, the church. Just as God sent Jesus announcing peace and bringing peace, So he sends us his church announcing peace and bringing peace. It's not a fake announcement. See, Jesus could have just said your sins are forgiven. And when they challenged him, said, well, yeah, I guess you'll have to wait and see. But he said, no, so that you might know. Guess what? We need to say to the world, so that you might know. And then we set about restoring people to wholeness. And you know what? The world's not all that picky. They don't care if you do it miraculously or by pure sacrifice. It's miraculous in their minds when a community of people will live that way, to be sure. This will require sacrificial living. Jesus himself, all all the way to the point, point of death, restored shalom by humbling himself. We are called to humble ourselves too, to lower ourselves. He didn't just lower himself momentarily. You know, you know, I'll do it for a couple of hours here. And then he lowered himself. One of the problems with thinking of peace as the absence of war, violence, hostility, or conflict is that one might come to the conclusion that if they don't see a war around them directly or violence that they can see or no one... in particular conflict at the moment, then there is no work to be done as a peacemaker. I'm a peacemaker. I'm just waiting for there to be some broken peace to deal with it. But you see, when we understand what peacemaking really is, when we understand what shalom making is, the work is all around us all the time. There's no missing it. You can turn around today, turn next to you, look around the room. There's plenty of it here. Walk out the doors. 
Might be in your car on the way home. I don't know. <laughs> Probably in your car on the way here. <clears throat> and I have not got your car bugged, just for the record. See, we, we, we can have this attitude that if there's not a particular conflict, then there's no work to be done as a peacemaker. And, I, you know, plenty of you husbands have made that mistake in your marriage before. You know better now, don't you? Oh, you know, there's no trouble. Everything must be good. I'm not going to talk about anything. Yeah, <laughs> That'll get you really far. Don't ask me how I know. If we only maintain that negative definition of peace, the absence of war, conflict, hostility, it's easy to live insular lives uninvolved in the brokenness and loss about which the world is mourning. We remain irrelevant. However, when we understand peace as shalom, as universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, when we understand some concept of shalom like that, then whenever people's lives are not whole and flourishing, we seek to find ways to bring them to that place. That's being shalom makers. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus to be Shalom makers is not some peripheral matter for the message about God sending his son. One scholar put it well, quote, It seems impossible to maintain that peace is a marginal concern in the Bible. And ridiculous to say that the church, an entity tasked with the proclamation of hope in a world of violence, need not be an outspoken advocate of peace. This Advent, let us as a community of disciples, contemplate our calling to be shalom makers, peacemakers, and let us act. Do more than just contemplate. Maybe it's with your friends, neighbors, family, etc. Or maybe God is calling you to get up and go as His Son did to a people who might not receive you, but to get involved in their lives. People right here in our community whose lives are broken. a few closing thoughts. Christmas is a a season of mixed emotions. We're reminded of hope, peace, joy, and love, but many are reminded of broken shalom in their lives. The loss of a loved one, the barrenness of a womb, the loneliness of having no community, the abuse of family, the list could go on. As Christ, the original peacemaker, came to live among us and restore wholeness everywhere, so too we should live our lives with our eyes open as peacemakers, shalom makers, and ask the Lord to show us how to bring shalom in some way to those we see. We do have to lift up our eyes and look in order to see. We have to pray, Lord, show us. We'll never be able to create an entire Eden on earth for someone. But to live as an image bearer is to help people experience a taste of Eden in their wilderness lives until that day when He comes again and restores the whole. And there's trees of life all down the streets of the city. A river of life. Wendell Berry asks this. He says, how can we have something better if we do not imagine it? How can we imagine if we do not hope for it? And how can we hope for it if we do not attempt to realize it? 
First, we have to imagine a world in which shalom exists. Wholeness, flourishing, justice. Then we have to imagine ways in which we might help bring this restoration to the broken, the mourning, the grieving, the suffering, those lacking shalom. And then we must attempt to realize it, to meet the person mourning or suffering and bring them a taste of peace, of Eden, of wholeness again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, the unique and ultimate shalom maker, peacemaker. Thank you that we've been restored in our relationship with you to wholeness. And though we tend to drift back into our brokenness in that relationship, you constantly welcome us back. Lord, shape us into peacemakers, shalom makers, who meet those who mourn all around us and bring them that peace. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand.